Okay, I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we're going to dig into Psalm 16, the whole chapter. And before you panic, this is a very short chapter. So, <laughs> Heavenly Father, we praise and worship you for this time we get together to praise and worship you. We thank you for the time that you have given us to mold our hearts and shape our thinking towards you, because that is the purpose your glory, Heavenly Father. Your glory is the purpose for everything, and our hearts should be oriented towards your glory. I pray that our sinful ways will be left behind, and your glory would be firmly affixed in our minds. I pray that this sermon would be an offering to you, that I would step aside, that you would push me aside, and instead your words would be spoken, Heavenly Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. So I was told yesterday I might need to preach today because Luke might need to be called out. Well, the Lord wanted me to preach apparently because Luke was called out. He told me this morning and I finished my sermon notes right before I did this. So that's why they're on my phone. Just letting you know. But Nick started reading his scriptures and I thought instantly, oh my goodness, the Lord had coordinated this. This is amazing because I'm going to be speaking about, well, the essence of what I'm going to be speaking about is the love of the Lord, the love of the Lord and how that affects our lives and our daily actions. How does it affect us? So let's go ahead and read this passage. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the reading of the Lord of God. You see, this passage is astoundingly deep. You could just park on one verse and unfold in just wisdom that, you, you, that unless you really spent the time to dig in, you'd be like, what? I never saw that before, but it's all, it's all there. It's an amazing passage because this passage powerfully speaks to what is called worldview. What is a worldview? Well, a worldview is how you view the world. It boils down to everything that you act, think, and feel. You see, we do based on our love. We do based on our love, our desires for joy and peace and, and, and the joy of the Lord or the joy in general, our desires for a heart that is settled motivates us. And now the question that I want to ask today is, is that a good thing? Are we supposed to be motivated by a desire to be comfortable, happy, and 
filled with joy. Think about that. It's not an uncommon thing to hear in certain Christian circles that it's actually a bad thing to be motivated by a desire to be at peace or rest, a desire to be filled with joy. Instead, you should be motivated, these certain Christian circles will say, that you should be motivated by a self-abasement. You should be motivated by nothing, in essence. The idea is, if you are motivated by something, in other words, if you have a reward at the end of your action, that action is bad. It's something you shouldn't be doing. The only time you're doing a good action is if there is no reward at the end. This is very problematic thinking. And the reason that it's problematic thinking is because of the first point I want to make. We are always, we always move or we always act in accordance with what we believe will make us at rest, will bring us to joy. Now, if this kind of seems contradictory to some of the things that we experience in life, think about it. If you stub your toe, this is a very base example, but if you stub your toe, what are you going to do? You're not going to try to stub your toe again. Let's say, you, you know, they, they actually make, um, they make, I saw this on a commercial one time. They make flashlights that attach to your socks. So that at night, they're very dim, at night you can walk through the house and you don't have to worry about stubbing your toes. But wait a second, that's a, that's a strange thing to be motivated by. You, do you want to avoid pain? Shouldn't we desire to seek out pain? Because doesn't the Bible tell us that pain can actually be a good thing? And in, in many ways it does, it tells us that. But if we interpret those passages to mean we should always seek after pain, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Because we as humans cannot escape the desire to seek after joy. Can't escape it. Can't escape it. We do everything we do in life because we believe that action is going to bring us joy. Now, where does this, where, where does this sort of all fall apart? Well, it falls apart, of course, with idols. Now, what is an idol? An idol is something that you believe is going to bring you joy. Your job, your family, your looks, your religion. And that thing cannot be God. It's anything other than God that you say, this is the end. This is the best. This is what I'm seeking after in my life. You say, my purpose is for this. My purpose is is to raise my children. That's why I exist. To raise my children and have to, to, to make them the best they could possibly be. That's my purpose in life. If that's your purpose in life, then I submit that you are following an idol. Uh, Timothy Keller, in one of his, in, in his books, uh, I forgot the full name of it, but it was regarding idols. He is speaking of anger and how we have anger incited in us. Think about it. If you are deeply enraged by something, and that something is even a trivial thing, somebody cut you off on the highway, somebody disrespected your family, and you were just beside yourself with anger and rage that you cannot forgive, that is an indication down in your heart there's something wrong. There's an idol being placed in front of God. So how do we know we have idols? 
We know we have idols because we have those moments in our life where I cannot give this thing up. This thing, whatever it might be, is more important to me than what God says. And a a lot of times, it may not feel that way. Of course, in this culture, we have a lot of times where they say, nope, you've got to live like this. You have to affirm this. And it's like, well, that's clearly against the Bible. But you see, that's an idol just exposed. For instance, the LGBTQ movement. It is idolizing individualistic self-expression. It's a fancy way of saying the self. Idolizing the self. Whatever's inside here is ultimately good. It can't possibly be wrong because you were born that way. Therefore, it must be the highest goal. Your, your highest goal, according to that idol, is to express yourself, to, to let it all out. Whatever's in there, let it out. Then they say, you will be happy. You will be filled with joy. What do the, uh, what do the, what do the therapists say? You sit down, you're sitting there, and they're just like, I'm just not happy. My life is a wreck. And they go, well, it looks like you're not expressing your deepest self. You have repressed anger. You have repressed things. The old religious structures have pressed you down into a box that is making you unhappy. You see how they're interpreting it? They're interpreting the pain and anguish in a way that conforms to an idol, not to the Bible. And because of the way that we've been sort of soaked in this new way of thinking, it's hard for us to actually not think, oh yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right, yeah. Shouldn't we express ourselves? Every sitcom I've ever watched says, you need to express yourself. You need to, or you won't be happy. There's a dumb um, show that, I don't watch um, Big Bang Theory, but I heard it in one sermon one time, where the lead character was, was talking to a therapist, and he's like, I just don't know. I'm not happy. And she says, you know what the real problem is? The lotus of your identity is not centered. And he's like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. It's not centered on the core of yourself and your deepest desires. And that, of course, is a worldly idol. So we have this inundation all around us. We have worldly idols that are telling us they're like peddlers. You, it's like you're walking down a bazaar. Let's just envision in Middle Eastern times, right? In ancient Middle Eastern times, you're walking down a bazaar. And you've got all of the people. Fine silk, fine silk. The world tells you this will make you happy. Perfumes, food, your family, they're all just kind of yelling at you. This will make you happy. This will make you happy. They want you to come over. They want you to pull out your wallet and go, yes, that'll make me happy. I want to purchase that. And then you'll take it home and you'll put it on your shelf, and you'll say, this will make me happy. And then that idol will start to tell you things. Mm, You need to get rid of this person in your life, because they're telling you you need to conform to this way of thinking, to God's way of thinking. They're saying that you should do this, but that doesn't conform with the perfect family model. It doesn't conform with that joy. So we always seek after joy. We, We just naturally do it. So what... And the world offers us so many different things. It says, this will make you happy. Think about the sin that you commit. And we all sin. But think about the sin. Just kind of bring it to the forefront of your mind that you you might even struggle with on a regular basis. Why do you commit that sin? Why do you do those things? Let's say that I might struggle with anger. 
Why am I getting angry? What am I defending? What in my life is so important that I say to God, yeah, you told me not to be angry. You told me not to, well, I should say, he says, be angry, but do not sin. But my anger goes way past sinning, right? I'm, it might just be like just boiling over to rage and being unloving and unkind. Oh, man, that would be me saying to God, I know you said be angry, yet do not sin. I know you said that. Don't care. This idol says be angry and defend me. So what you're saying is, no, God, not your way. I want this idol. I want this. Think about it. If you struggle with all sorts of sins, it's always <laughs> rooted in the same thing. You say, no, God. Think about the, 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 the person who leaves their spouse. Says, I want, I want something better. This is awful. They say, no, God, I don't believe you. You're not joy. You're not happiness. This will make me happy. The world says it over and over again. And when you buy into that lie, you start to walk down the road that's paved by that idol. It's paved by that, that wonderful looking little thing that dances in the distance. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, that'll be great. It'll be great. It keeps promising you. And it promises you. And it promises you. And then you get there. You get to the promise. Let's, let's bring another example in. Money. Money. What's the promise of money? Happiness. Okay, we know that love, you can't buy love, right? But everybody says it. Nobody believes it. Nobody believes that money can't make you happy. Just look at all the people who are so rich. Aren't they happy? When your heart starts to buy into the lie, money can make me happy. You start to mistake temporary pleasures. The pleasure of shelling out $1,500 for whatever toy you want. It's like, this is awesome. And then you get to use it for a while. And then it kind of, in your mind, it kind of rots. It degrades. Oh, man, this is not as awesome as it used to be. Got to make more money. Got to shell out more money. You go through the same cycle over and over. What's happening? You're buying into the lie. This will make me happy. And then it doesn't really make you happy. In fact, it could actually make you very upset and very disconnected or discontent. And then you go, why is this not making you happy? And then money whispers in your ear, and really this is Satan in the world, whispers into your ear and says, oh, but it was only one time. You need to do it again. If you really want to be, you need to do it again. You need to buy that next bigger thing. Just buy this other thing. You should, you'll be happy then. And then you do. And the cycle continues and continues. And then we have millionaires who just sought after riches. They sought after the worldly pleasures. They sought after everything the world has to offer as the end, as the idol. And they get to the end and they go, is this it? Is that it? Is there nothing more in life? And some of them are so in despair. They cannot continue. If, if, if that's it, I'm done. And they commit suicide. They end their life because the misery and pain of the reality of the idol starts to really sink in and you realize life is hopeless. And I, every time I hear of that, every time I hear of that depressing, I'm like, I really wish I was there and I could just, mm, just preach the truth, the reality that all their idols that they were seeking promised them joy, promised them happiness. They say, if you love me, you'll be happy. If you love me, you'll be filled with joy. And they kept going, okay, yeah, let's see. Let's, let's do this. Let's do it. And they kept getting closer and closer. And then the goal was set farther away. 
And then the goal was set farther away. It's just, like, ah, it's just constant cycle. And then depression and misery sets in. And you think, that's it. That's it. Nothing will make me happy. Why do you think that we struggle with drug and alcohol abuse? Where does that struggle rooted from? It's rooted from the belief that it will make you happy. It's going to make you happy. Life is hard. Then the drug comes in and says, oh, but it could be so much easier. Even if just for a moment, it could be so much easier. But then afterwards, it's so much worse. And then you've got to do it again. You see, in many ways, seeking after the idols of the world is like an addiction. It's like the hope of something that you're never going to get. So now that we've delved into the misery of worldly idols, what can we do? How can we escape this? Because everything in the world, everything, including all the worldly religions, we've got, we've got Buddhism, we've got Hinduism, we've got Muslim or Islam. All these things seem very foreign to us, like, you know, why would anyone even consider doing that? But think about it. They offer happiness. Buddhism says, strive without ceasing. He says, you've got to become one with the universe. You've got to become one with the universe. Okay, so if you reach what they call nirvana, you're going to be happy. Same promise. In Islam, same promise. If you follow the five pillars, you're going to be happy. Life is going to be better. But what does God promise? What does the Lord promise us? Well, you know what? Let's finish out. Let's, let's read the very end of this powerful passage. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence, there's fullness of joy. So what does that tell us? Haven't you heard people say, heaven is going to be boring? Have you ever heard that before? Heaven's going to be boring. I mean, you're going to get up there. You're going to be able to do all these cool things. You're going to see your family. But after about a thousand years, I'm sure that you'll be a bit bored. You know, you'll have done everything you can do, right? There's nothing more to do. That, I submit to you, is, first off, it's not heaven. It is a worldly misinterpretation of what heaven is. Heaven is not a giant theme park for you to go from one ride to another. And now you get to be with your family to go from one ride to another. That's not heaven. Heaven is looking at God. And now that might seem, oh, wait, I can spend all eternity looking at God. Let me elaborate here. Heaven is being in the presence of God. Think about that one moment in your life where you thought to yourself, I, for all of those who are married, uh, this, this will hopefully hit home. You think to yourself, I miss my spouse so much. I want to be next to them. I, I feel this where I'm like, where I, I sometimes just during a day, I'm like, I miss Sarah. I want to be next to her. And at the end of the day, I will say, okay, I'm comforted just because I'm in the same presence as Sarah. You know, and it gets even better if, I get, if we get to talk for a long period of time, sit, go on a date night. You see, the reason that this happens is because Sarah is a gift from God, first and foremost, but because God gives me joy through her. 
God gives me joy through Sarah. Now, this joy is never meant to stop at Sarah because then she becomes an idol. This joy, the hope, is supposed to go through Sarah. Sarah's just a conduit and then land on God. Our heart, the deepest part of us, is supposed to say, I want you, Lord. I don't care about anything else. Nothing else matters. Life doesn't matter unless I have you. Now, the Lord gives us plenty of gifts, but that's just his mercy that is supposed to point back to us. His generosity, I'm sorry, supposed to point back to him. And in him, there are pleasures forevermore. So you know what heaven is? Heaven is being with God. It is experiencing God. And if you think for a second that's going to get boring, well, God is infinite. And so for infinity, we will, we will stretch off into infinity exploring God. We will walk with him. We will talk with him. We will be settled. Our purpose in life will be fulfilled to worship and praise him. So he says, so he says in here, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. But you know what he says about the other idols? He says, the sorrows of those who run after another, lowercase g, God shall multiply. This sounds familiar. This sounds very familiar. The world says, here's just God. Here's this God. Here's this God. Follow one of them. You know, just don't follow that God. That God, he's, he's the one you shouldn't follow. Follow these, the worldly pleasures. He says, the sorrows. And remember, this was written thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago. Think about how immensely applicable this is today. This was written thousands of years ago. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And David says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. He says, I reject them. I reject those gods because they are paths to misery. They are paths to pain and suffering. You see... It is absolutely the correct thing to seek after joy if we seek after joy, the correct joy. You see, you seek after the wrong joy, and then it becomes, well, an idol. It becomes one of the ultimate worst sins. But if you seek after the correct joy, then that is, that's what we were supposed to, that's what we're built to do anyways. Think about it. If I go to Sarah and I give her flowers, it's not totally unmotivated. What do I want? I want her love. I want her affections. But nobody's going to go, oh, Lance, what in the world? You shouldn't give your wife flowers for that motivation. I want her to be happy. Well, that's a wrong motivation. You shouldn't do that. Everyone would go, yeah, that's right. But why is that right? If we're supposed to have no motivation at all, then that would be wrong. No, no, no. It's right because I'm seeking the correct reward the one that God has designed as correct. So how do we seek the correct reward? How do we seek the true joy? How do we get to him? Well, there's a problem. We're filled with sin. And if you don't believe me, read a history book. Actually, read the Bible first. Then read a history book. I mean, when I started really delving into history, I sort of became an amateur history buff, I was just shocked at how immensely sinful mankind is. I could just go for one thing after another. You just read of the atrocities we've committed, and it doesn't matter which culture, it doesn't matter which time frame. It, it was just, it just, in fact, if you think we're more peaceful now, in this last century, more people have died than all of the previous centuries combined in this century. 
the most hideous and heinous things have happened within the past 15, 20 years. Committed at the hands of mankind. Okay, well, that's, that's probably a philosophical and you know, abstract example. But the Bible tells us that we are filled with sin. I mean, why would we seek out idols other than God if we weren't? So what can we do? Because now we have a problem, a big problem. We must be separated from God because God cannot look upon unrighteousness. He said, I cannot let the unrighteous go unpunished. And we know this is right. We know this is good. Think about it. Think about it. Horrible murderer stands before the, uh, the judge's bench. And the judge goes, you know, we just need to just be merciful. I'm just going to let him go. We know he's guilty. We're just going to let him go? We know that he should be punished. But then when it comes to our turn to sit at the bench and our guilt stands before us, we go, well, you know, you need to be merciful, God. You said you were a merciful God. You need to be merciful. He is absolutely the most just wonderfully merciful God. Do you know how I know? Because Jesus Christ came down to this earth, lived the life we couldn't live, and died the death we couldn't die so that we could be saved by his blood. By his blood. God said, you can't do it. Can't. You can't do it. I will do it. He said in Isaiah, he will cut off his right arm. That was his way of saying, my my only begotten son, with whom I am well pleased, will come to this earth, will walk this earth. He will be perfect, the perfect sacrifice. He will go to the cross and all of God's wrath for those who would believe is poured out onto Jesus. Onto Jesus. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is God smashing his son with his wrath. This truth is astonishing. And then he dies after he says, or yeah, after he says, it is finished. He dies, and three days later, he, he, he's risen again in the body. Very important, in the body. And in this gospel, we are saved. And then something amazing happens. Nick read it earlier. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If he's just another God that's telling us do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll be saved, boy, that'd be a pretty heavy yoke, wouldn't it? Pretty heavy burden. You'd have this massive thing set on and you've got to pull it, right? Like an ox. You've got to pull this heavy burden that he put on your shoulders. But no, no, no. He said, it is finished. It is done. Your salvation is complete in him. That's all I have for you today. Make sure to check out our website, divedeep.net, for more content, including blog posts, book reviews, and video content. If you like this podcast, help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes and Google Play. Also, check out our main episodes of Dive Deep on the podcast feed and stream live on Facebook every other Thursday night at 7 p.m. That's at facebook.com slash divedeeppodcast. We hope to see you there. Soli Deo Gloria.